Good morning, quarantine! Well, there's no sense in waiting any longer, because as you can hear, that leaf blower is going to be going all day long. And if I listen closely in the background, I can probably hear my kid starting to scream because he does not want to get up, even though no one is telling him to. Anyways, with that, welcome. I'll go by Gerg during our time together, and you, my smart and capable friend, are well-versed in what this channel is all about. But, if not, go check out the previous segments, because they all play into each other. And that being said, you'll definitely want to stick around and see where this thought train is going. So join me, and together, we can rule the audio waves. But with that, I'll try to keep these segments short and regular, but they will try to provoke thought and movement. You know, like a good poop. Let's jump into it. So this segment's going to be focusing on something that I brought up quite a few times in uh, all, pretty much all of the previous segments. Uh, just as a quick recap, those segments uh, started with our jump into the foundation. So the foundation is what you want to work from in any time of adversity. It's something you want to fall back from, a place that you know you can work from. That foundation is built from your, your mental, your spiritual, your physical, and your social domains. All those things put together kind of give you the tools that you need in order to face any kind of adversity and that's we're in a state of a lot of adversity right now whether it's due to the virus or job loss or the economy um, there's a lot of things going on right now that creates a lot of uncertainty and something we want to address the next piece we got into was choice so having a foundation gives us a lot more access to choice because it lets us think clearly it lets us uh, see more options available to us and having choice just generally lets us operate effectively no matter what the situation is. We wanna have choices, unless of course, we're in the grocery store and we see 15 of the same item and they're all the same price and you're like, I don't know which one to choose. Um, I have that dilemma, maybe you don't, I don't know. in and outs great because there's three things on the menu. I still have choice, but I have a pretty quick decision to make. Anyways, change. So change is also something that I brought up in the third segment, it was a three-parter, lots going on there, but something that is uh, is a big part of what's going on right now. So I went over how to how to perceive change, the different types of change, those being abrupt and gradual change, and of course, um, how to deal with change once it actually does come into your life, both how to use a gradual change effectively and to uh, avoid that deterioration that can also come with gradual change, but also how to address address how to address abrupt change uh, because that is inevitably going to happen in our lives and the more we are prepared for that abrupt change the more we have our our foundation established the more we can operate effectively in the face of abrupt change so this segment is going to be focusing on fear. So what fear is, uh, how to interpret fear, how to understand fear, and ultimately how to face fear. Now going through my notes again, it's probably going to be split up into multiple episodes just based off of uh, the, the certain things I wanted to talk about. When you talk about one thing, it leads to another thing. Um, <laughs> but this this segment, there's there's uh, a lot to unpack because fear, just like, just like the foundation, the reason why we're talking about the foundation, fear is something that is kind of permeating our lives, especially right now. And I, I'm not gonna get into the specifics of the virus and everything like that, 
or you know what what the future has to hold but fear in general is something that you want to understand so that you can address it effectively because the fact of the matter is that fear actually does it happens all the time we experience it all the time even when things aren't necessarily scary we're still experiencing certain levels of fear a lot of times in our lives and we're going to dig into why that is uh, but why talk about it in the first place at all well like i said before there's a lot of fear right now and i did start this this uh this channel so that you could start every day or every uh <clears throat> every every few days or so off on the right foot with actionable things that you could use to build your resilience and um, again face that adversity because like i said fear fear does happen a lot of times in our lives and especially right now that i wanted to help provide something that hopefully people could use not to distract themselves because there are lots of things that can distract you right now but things that you could actually use to combat that fear now and in the future hopefully so what is fear it's actually an inherited safety mechanism that is you know, built into our, our biology and our physiology as a survival instinct. It's an emotional trigger. It's, it's used to provoke a quick response to perceived danger. And uh, just think back to you know, your caveman days, back when I almost, <laughs> I almost said, uh, think back to growing up by the end of the, you know, a little longer than that. So think back to caveman days when the resources we have today, just they weren't available. You had to actually go out, you had to put your life on the line in order to bring food home at the end of the day. You had to try new things. Things weren't very clear. They didn't have instruction labels on every rock uh, saying which moss was poisonous and which wasn't. You just had to try it and uh, see who lived. Anyways, fear was fear was uh, designed to keep people alive or at least as best as it could. Um, but how does that actually happen? Well, first you have to actually perceive a threat. And this threat comes from a, a sense of loss of control, whether it's real a real loss of control or at least perceived loss of control. And that is derived from experience or lack thereof. Um, that is fear of the unknown, right? So a very healthy fear because you don't wanna go trying something. I mean, think back, think to any of the, uh, any of the horror movies, right? Any of those alien movies where the guys pretty much don't have any fear of the unknown. They walk straight up to that egg and uh, yeah, look what happens. Anyways, that's a healthy thing to have. When we do have control, we we don't have worry about a situation. When we think we're in control of something, we don't have worry that uh, we don't have any, f any fear to deal with. For example, so think about your household pet, your dog. You adopted that dog, it lives in your house. You let it live in your house. It walks around all the time when you're sitting uh, on the couch, dog walks by, you don't think anything of it, but let's say swap out that dog for a tiger. And this isn't a tiger you just went and bought because you watched Tiger King on a marathon because you were bored. No, this is a tiger that just randomly appears in your house. Now, what would be your response to that? Personally, um, I would poop myself. <laughs> now, maybe that's your response, maybe not, but generally uh, you're probably going to react not the same way that you would if a dog walked by because you aren't in control of that situation. You didn't put the tiger there, and tigers are generally seen as, you know, vicious big cats. So um, if a tiger walks by, you're probably not going to react to the same way. Bottom line, you're not going to react the same way as if your dog walked by, and that is from the fear response. You sense danger, you respond to it. Now, alternatively, um, when you think you're in control and you're not, that could also be a bad situation because think of the, the classic hold my beer <laughs> phrase right so alcohol and generally generally the reason why uh 
women tend to live longer than men, but I'm no expert in that realm, so I won't go any farther there. But anyways, alcohol tends to uh, give a, a false sense of competence because it, it, it limits that, that, lack, that sense of lack of control, right? So you're, you, you have the alcohol, you feel like, I can do anything right now, or at least I can do it a lot better than I thought I, would, I could before. And uh, that's how we get to hold my beer, watch me do this, and cross my fingers that I come out alive on the other side. But that's not what we're worried about at the time. <laughs> right. So what actually happens when, when fear is engaged? So like I talked about in a previous segment, generally there is a stimulus, there's a situation you're put in that triggers a thought. And that thought, the thought that leads to fear is danger, right? Or at least some kind of threat. There's a threat. That's your thought that initially kicks off. And this is something we wanted to address when we talked about the skill of reframe. We wanted to be able to address the thought because the thought automatically drives the emotion. Now, in the case of fear, that's still the same exact process, but it's a quick response. As soon as you sense danger, as soon as you identify danger, identify a threat, you're, you're naturally going to jump into that emotional response a lot faster. And that is a good, that's an inherited response that is key to our survival. But we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so what are the actual responses it triggers? Well, again, like we talked about in a previous segment, it triggers that freeze, flee, or fight response. A lot of times it's called uh, freeze, fight, or flight. That rolls off the tongue, the tongue a bit better. Uh, excuse me, getting tongue-tied myself. But uh, I like to say flee just, just because it, flight can be interpreted a, little, a few different ways. Um, it can mix things up. Flee is a little bit more to the point. You're escaping something, right? You're escaping either responsibility or you're escaping a threat itself. Um, okay, so what does that do? So it triggers off those those general responses, but what do those responses entail? Well, the physiological responses uh, a lot of times will include rapid or shallow breathing, rapid and or shallow breathing. So you're breathing a lot quicker, you're taking shorter breaths, uh, you're not taking deep breaths. Your eyes also tend to widen. Um, you take your, your eyes widen, your, uh, your pupils dilate because you're trying to be more aware of your surroundings. Uh, you're trying to take in all the threats and make an assessment of what's going on. You also tend to have quick or rapid short movements. So a lot of times this is associated with the eyes and the head. You're darting your head back and forth quicker, your eyes are darting back and forth. Uh, because you also, again, you want to pick up on those threats. You want to be very aware of what's going on. Getting to the next thing, you want to make those acute physical responses because you, you will have a tense posture because you, your, your body is preparing for you to react. Um, you also tend to have a minimalized posture. If there's a threat, if you're in that freeze response, you tend to have a minimal, minimalized posture, not taking up a whole lot of area because you, want, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to be seen by whatever that perceived threat is. You tend, to, you tend to cover up vulnerable parts, so bringing your arms close to your chest, covering those vital organs, and ten, usually tend to duck your head down because you're covering your, the neck, which is, which is a sensitive area just by nature. Uh, adrenaline cortisol tend to increase, and again, those, those lead to acute performance, greater acute performance, but meaning that you can only, you can physically do one thing very well, and that's to augment the freeze, flee, or fight response. And you tend to have a heightened physical response so that you can get out of a situation so you can either attack or flee effectively. And unfortunately, you also tend to have lower critical thinking. But this is also a good thing in those no kidding, life-threatening situations. You don't want to have time. Your body doesn't want 
to let you have time to think. It doesn't want you to let let you have time to uh, mull it over, so to speak. It wants to put you in that autopilot to satisfy the freeze, flee, or fight response. And these are all good things, right? This is a good thing that our body does this, especially, and again, this is in response to a life-threatening situation. That is what fear is designed to address. But these things don't always just happen because of a physical, uh, physical fear response. Um, anything that is perceived as a threat, especially these days when we have a lot less uh, tangible, life-threatening situations available to us just because of the, the comfort that we inherently have, especially in a first world country, uh, things like stress, anxiety, anger, uh, dislike, disgust, those are all derived from fear as well. And we tend to address those, those former ones, the anxiety, stress, on a, a lot more regular basis because of the things that we perceive as threats. Not necessarily to our life, but we still perceive them as threats, so those still kick off the fear response all the same. Now, I always like to, I like to bring my kid into a lot of these examples, and sure, he doesn't have quite the uh, stressful life that us adults have, but at the same time, he, uh, he does, you know, kids, kids are just the best in terms of conveying the most primal instincts that we have, and he's a great example of, of that kind of stuff. So for him, whenever we tell, uh, we tell him to do something, he'll physically shy away from that thing if he doesn't want to do it. He'll, he'll duck his head in, he'll cover his neck by ducking his chin in, and he'll literally back away because he's uncomfortable with the suggestion we're trying to make. Hey, go sit down. He's going to duck away and... <laughs> and try to do that. So a very, very primal response to that. And it's, it's funny observing those kind of behaviors because, because they do show these innate responses. Um, but like I said, these are, these are designed to be good things. This is an inherent safety mechanism built into our survival. But how are they actually triggered? So I did talk about you have to actually perceive the threat first. You have to recognize the danger. We talked about that in the reframe piece. But how do we actually, why, why do we jump into that? Especially if, let's say, we're, um, we're competent in a reframe. How do we know that something is a threat more often than not? How do we perceive something specifically as a threat? What makes us think it's a danger to begin with? Well, there's this thing called negativity bias. And it's the natural tendency for us to draw our attention to recognize bad things. Things that go against our values. Things that make us have an emotional response because we want to be aware of threats more than anything, more than we necessarily want to be aware of um, the good fruit in the trees. We want to be aware of the tiger just below the tree, right? We don't want to put ourselves in a bad situation. We want to, we want to keep ourselves out of harm's way, right? So that's why we have a negativity bias and why it draws us to focus on things that we perceive as bad. And this brings up a good metaphor of actually investing. So Warren Buffett, one of the, considered to be one of the, the best investors, if not the best investor, he's at least by name, um, he has two rules, he says, of investing. The first rule is don't lose money. The second rule is refer to rule number one. So his whole philosophy on investing, and he's the guy to go to, right? His philosophy, his whole philosophy on investing is not to lose. And that's exactly what the negativity bias is for. It's trying to get us into a state to recognize things that prevent us from losing, whether it's our life or things that are key to our survival. But this natural tendency of negativity bias does work against us. It kind of follows the concept of misery loves company, right? So the mind searches for danger 
and it focuses on the bad. And as soon as it finds the bad, it says, okay, how is this going to affect me? I'm going to focus on things that relate to that bad thing, how that's going to affect me. It, try, it, it basically goes into this downward spiral. And that could be a bad thing, especially when there's no real threat to our life, right? There's no, there's nothing that's going to inherently be a danger to us. We're focusing on these negative things. That's how people get to that state, unfortunately, of depression and everything like that. And if, if we don't cut that off, if we won't figure out how to cut that off, that's when we put ourselves in a bad mental state. But that tendency still exists, right? We just have to learn how to combat it. Unfortunately, rumor has it, back in the uh, back before the 70s, and I'm kind of dating myself here because I, I didn't live to experience that, <laughs> uh, but ignore that piece. Anyways, supposedly prior to the 70s, news, news media tended to be a lot more balanced in terms of good news and bad news. They tried to bring you the news um, to give you informed decisions, to keep you updated on what's going on in the world. And they didn't necessarily focus on just the bad things that were happening until the, the turn of phrase came about, if it bleeds, it leads. And that is a direct correlation to the negativity bias because we, again, our natural tendency is to focus in on those negative things, to draw in and to engage with those things that um, we perceive as bad because naturally we wanna be aware of them and we wanna focus in so that we can react to them effectively. But if we're just absorbing it, we're not actually using it, we just see one negative thing, jump to the next negative thing. Oh, I need to hear about that. Ooh, what's going on here? It's the same concept of rubbernecking, right? You wanna know what happened because you find it uh, morbidly interesting and that, that is a negativity bias at work. Add into this the, the lower threat to our survival that I, that I mentioned before. Think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So at the base of the pyramid, we have your physiological needs. Uh, you have to breathe, you have to eat, you have to have water, homeostasis, all the things that keep your body functioning properly. And then above that, you have your safety needs. So your security, whether it's somewhere to live, um, your employment, your resources, your availability, having uh, family safety, having health, having property, things that keep you safe, but don't necessarily keep you alive. Uh, that's that. Those are your lower base needs. And above, above safety is your belonging, your love needs, um, friendship, family, all that kind of stuff. And above that is esteem. So self-esteem, confidence, uh, respect. And above that is self-actualization, creativity, morality, uh, feelings of progress and um, fulfillment and all that kind of stuff. So looking at that pyramid, think about where you are today. You probably have no issue being alive. And above that, you probably have a place to live. You have food to eat. You're listening to this on some kind of device. So I imagine you have some, you have resources available to you. And more than likely you have access to friendships. Maybe not so much right now, but that's what uh, all those videos, uh, video conferencing technologies are for. Those are booming right now, uh, but I digress. So you have access to friendships and family, and that's a great thing. But as you work your way up the pyramid, you're, if you just picture that pyramid, you actually have less, you have less room to work with, right? They, your needs become less basic and they become more refined. Meaning that when you, when you satisfy, when you feel like you have control, again, it comes back to control, when you feel like you have control over each level of the pyramid, those things become, you, you don't fear about those things as much until something abrupt happens, until some, until some kind of change happens, until a real threat to your survival happens. 
in the meantime, as you work your way up the pyramid and you're existing at, primarily at one of those higher levels, any threat to that level, any threat to friendship will probably bring on anxiety. Uh, family strife will bring on anxiety, self-esteem issues, uh, confidence. Basically, the concept is that when our standards of living, when our luxury increases, um, our, our smaller issues tend to magnify because those become the new threats to our day-to-day -day lives. These new threats to survival, or what we consider to be survival, are now being late to a meeting, uh, being late to work, traffic, social pressure, public speaking, uh, losing some money, scrutiny, uh, test taking, that was a big one for me, uh, deadlines. None of these are inherently life-threatening, but they still are perceived as threats. They still cause anxiety and stress, and they still bring along those same physiological responses that I discussed earlier. All those, you know, rapid breathing, uh, low critical thinking, all that kind of stuff, it still brings on those types of things. Now combine that with our fast-paced culture, the fact that we're always staying engaged, that we're um, everything is available to us instantaneously, and expectation increases because of that, both internal expectation, I need to have this now, I need to, I need to be better now, see this person doing this, I need to be like that. You're maybe not having those direct thoughts, but you're still internalizing that kind of message to yourself being plugged in. And the external expectation of, well, you can accomplish this now because we have this new tool, because we have the internet, because we have that, you can accomplish things faster and deadlines tend to pick up. Yes, it creates exponential growth to uh, what we can accomplish as a society, but at the same time on a personal level, that's a lot of anxiety to work with. So all this put together, it's, it puts this mind, the mind, it doesn't give the mind time to rest. Uh, think about how your day typically plays out. So you'll wake up in the morning, maybe you don't give yourself a whole lot of time uh, to yourself, you just give enough time so you can get ready, get up, and get to work. You get to work, you grind through the day. Uh, maybe, you know, you, you have some casual conversation here and there, but for the most part, you're doing what you need to do and you're, you're keeping yourself engaged that whole time, even if it's distracted. Then you come home, uh, you get things settled down, you have dinner, all that type of stuff. You have your family time, all good stuff. But then you start winding down. You might have a little bit of time to yourself now and immediately you're like, okay, I need to unwind. And you, f you turn on Netflix or you, you start flipping through Facebook or something like that. Then it's straight to bed. And that whole time, your, your, your mind is constantly engaged, right? You're not giving your mind time to relax. You're always, um, you're constantly introducing new stimuli. And a lot of that might be bringing on new, uh, new bouts of fear, anxiety, stress, all that kind of stuff that just naturally you're, you're used to at this point, right? So think about how that's basically like curling a two pound weight. You just, easy stuff, not hard, uh, you don't even think twice about it, but think about curling that two pound weight. Uh, let's just do both arms, curling both arms, two pound weight, all day long. You're doing it constantly throughout the day. And then at the very end of your day, you set down those weights, you're ready to go, and then suddenly someone says, okay, here's a, here's a 20 pound box. Can you, you lift it up for me? And you're like, yeah, sure, no problem. You go to pick up that box and what happens? You, you can't do anything because you've just been exhausting your muscles all day long. Now, I haven't actually tried this experiment. Maybe you'd be fine with a 20 pound box, but I'm thinking after uh, hoisting those two pound weights all day long, it would probably be a lot, at least a lot more difficult than you would uh, normally experience with a 20 pound box. But 
But that's just an example of what your mind is constantly going through throughout the day when you're constantly um, just keeping it engaged, keeping it, not giving it any time to relax, to cool down. Um, you might be throwing in a lot of micros fear stimuli, throwing in those chemicals when you, they don't need to be thrown in there. And it's no wonder at this point that the leading cause of, of premature death, at least in the United States, is heart disease. Cortisol, for example, I, the extra, having extra amounts of cortisol in your system, that's what can lead to weight gain and acne and a slow, slow healing, um, slow healing process, hair loss, skin problems, aging, all the stuff, you know, all those creams, all the creams in the world couldn't fix and it'd be a miracle if they could, but, um, just, and the real cure is, is having less stress and the root of that causing less fear. So also take into consideration what we, uh, what we went over earlier in this segment. So fear also engages those autopilot responses. Once your mind perceives that threat and engages that emotional response, those physiological responses start kicking off, whether that's, you know, shallow breathing, um, acute performance, uh, limited critical thinking, all those things are still happening even with, with those minor fear states like stress or anxiety, those things that we are constantly exposing ourselves to with what we're perceiving as threats. And are those things actually threats to our survival? Think, you know, taking a test, uh, driving in late to work, public speaking, losing a job, losing a loved one. You know, inherently none of those things, like we said before, are threats to our survival. They might be things that impact our life greatly, um, but they are not threats to our survival. So having those physiological responses aren't the right answer to those situations. Think about public speaking. You want to be engaged. You want to be talking uh, fluently. You want to be jumping from subject to subject effectively. You don't want to be in a state where you your mind gets closed off and you can only think about fleeing or freezing. You don't want to be in a situation where you have unfortunately lost your job and you get into a state where you can't think about what to do next. You can only think about um, avoiding the pain and avoiding the fear. And, and same with losing a loved one. You don't want to be in that state where you can't support those family members that are still there. You don't want to be in that state where you can't make the decisions that are going to take you where you need to be. So having those physiological responses, although they are good for survival, they are not so good for our daily interactions and for our daily needs and facing our daily uh, trials. But the answer is not necessarily to remove fear altogether. If we were given that choice magically, we would not want to remove fear altogether because it is essential to our survival. We need to have that instinct. But at the same time, we want to learn how to operate effectively in spite of fear. But that's going to be the next subsegment because I have definitely gone over my self-imposed time limit. And because I preach choice so much, I want you to have yours. So if you'd like to stick around for part two, um, you can definitely do so. And I'll be going over what I believe are the best ways to face fear and flourish. And salt base some alliteration there for you. Well, until next time. Thank you.